through uh, Genesis this fall, and we talked about Genesis 1 and the creation last week, and here we are in Genesis 2, the creation of man and woman. On page 2, not hard to find, and helpful to have in front of you, if you have, don't have your Bible, there's a, a Bible in the chair in front of you, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 4. Uh, that says these are the generations. This is a, uh, an important marker in the book of, gener- of Genesis. So there's ten of these phrases. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 4, and it's a way to go through the book of Genesis. It's a good outline. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's called the toledot, the toledot. So these are the generations, and essentially when you read that, it's basically answering the question, well, what happened to the heavens and the earth? So Genesis 1 talks about the heavens and the earth, and then basically the author, Moses, is saying, okay, so what happened to the heavens and earth? What happened to God's good creation? And so we'll get to, in Genesis chapter 4, when we reach there, uh, these are the generations of Adam. So, so what happened to Adam? That's the question that the, the author is trying to answer here. And so we're going through what happened to God's good creation. That's the question we're trying to answer here. So let's stand together and we'll read Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Fishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. There was gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone were there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Then the man, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up to place the place with his flesh. And the rib that he, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. this point we'll dismiss the kindergarten and through the second graders through the back door and as we we look at this um, book and particularly these opening chapters but really the whole book of genesis one i'm asking you to take a seat in a particular converse, uh, congregation and to uh, listen to a particular preacher and that congregation and preacher is not Christ Community Church and Paul Phillips, that congregation is the Israelites, the newly freed slaves. They've just come out of Egypt. They're on the far side of the Red Sea, and their preacher is Moses. And so these people who've been in 400 years of slavery and been rescued by this God who now has a name, Yahweh, they're asking questions, as you might imagine. They're saying, well, who is God? Who is this God who's rescued us? What is he like? What are, what are, who are we? What are we like? And what does this God want from us? And so they basically want to know God and then they want to know themselves. Knowing God is critical for every life. And I love how J.I. Packer says this in his book called Knowing God. Quote, knowing God is crucially important for our lives as it would be cruel for, for as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman. To fly him to London and leave him to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life an unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, Packer says, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So it, we, we're in this world. We're asking questions. What, who, what is this world like? What are we like? Who is God? Is there a God? These are the same kinds of questions that they were asking. And we find ourselves asking these very same questions. And the answer to these questions for Moses is Genesis chapter 50. He listens to the questions of his congregation, and he says, okay, guys, in the beginning. And he goes through 50 chapters, basically this short history of humankind, of human history, to bring them all the way up to the point where they landed in Egypt themselves. And so last week we saw this beautiful opening statement about the beginning of the world in chapter 1. And, and Moses stands back and give us, gives us this 30,000-foot view, the, the widest, grandest view of God. And God is the creator of all things. He's the main person in history. The whole, the whole book is about God. 
And now in chapter 2, it's like Moses taking this telescope and he's zooming down just to the creation of man and woman. The first one is the broadest view. Then with this huge view of who God is, he says, let's take a telescope and just zoom in on the creation of mankind. Let's examine man and woman more closely. And you look in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God's what we talked about last week is God's pinnacle of creation is mankind. And he bestows to them a dignity that he doesn't bestow to anybody else. They're made in his image. And again, imagine if you had been a Hebrew slave for 400 years. There's only one person made in God's image. That's Pharaoh. And you as a slave, you're nobody. You're nothing. You're worthless. And Moses steps back and says, no, this God who we now know by name, Yahweh, he looks at you and says, I've created even you in my image. Would have been a stunning revelation for these particular, this particular congregation. And so when we come to chapter 2, we're, we're not coming to a second creation account, which sometimes people think. Instead, we're narrowing this field of vision. We're trying to say, let's zoom in on one particular activity, and that is humanity, male and female. So as we, we put our eyes to the telescope, there's, there's so much to see here in chapter 2. And I was a little humbled and maybe even nervous this week when I was looking at another person, a very popular person's sermon series in the book of Genesis. And in the first two chapters, he dedicated 14 sermons to the first two chapters. And I'm giving it two. So there's no way to get all the things that could be said about Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 in two sermons. So we're going to pick out these three really huge pieces that I think have to be set in place in our mind so that we can adequately go forward. And those three things are work, marriage, and a covenant. Now, now, there's lots of impor- other important things said here, but I, I'm just, we just only have time for these three, work, marriage, and a covenant. First of all, let's look at work, this enormously important topic. One scholar says work is the, is the primary topic of these two chapters. In chapter 1, God works. In chapter 2, he assigns work to mankind. You could just say that's the theme, the opening theme of the two chapters, work. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, what the main thing I want us to see about this, in, especially in Genesis 1 and 2, is that work is not a four-letter word. Well, it is a four-letter word, but you know what I mean. It's not a bad word. It's, it's a word that didn't begin at the fall. It's a word that wasn't part of the curse. It's a good word. It's, it's part of God's great creation. It's not like God put Adam and Eve to be in the garden and lay around on hammocks all day. And then they blew it, and so now we have to work. And what we're hoping for is to go back and lay in hammocks all day. That's not the idea. But unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think, is we're just going to sit around, and the the biggest work we're going to do in heaven is, is pick a piece of fruit off a tree. 
But that's not it. God has designed us to be in partnership with him and work is a great thing. So we're coming from this idea of good work and in Revelation when the new heavens and new earth and new heavens and earth come, we're not going to be sitting around on clouds playing a harp. We're going to be working. But we're going to be working minus sin, thankfully, and working really in unison with the Lord. So work is part of God's creation. Work all by itself has divine dignity. That You've got to have that really firmly placed in your mind. Work all by itself has divine dignity. And the reason I say that is because a lot of times we have uh, misguided views of work. One commentator says it's not by accident that God shows up in the Old Testament as a gardener and in the New Testament as a carpenter. He's a worker. He works with his hands. The work that he accomplishes, this forming and filling, is good work. And in Genesis 2, he basically creates a business partnership with you and I. And says, let's go into business together. Let's work together on something. And so God's, when God creates the Garden of Eden, it wasn't an end. It was a beginning. I'm going to do this little plot of land. I'm going to put you guys in it. And then you're going to stretch that all the way across the globe. You're not supposed to just sit there and say, well, okay, what do we do? Let's not get out of the garden. No, let's take the garden and move it all the way around the globe. Take this model that God has shown you, get into partnership with God, and then stretch this model all the way around the globe. That's the idea that God's getting at in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. But like I said, a lot of times we have these wrong or incomplete views of work, and here are three common ones. First, just the secular view. This is uh, living in a world without God. So work basically becomes self-fulfillment. Success in life is equal to success in work. I mean, I don't have God as any kind of measure, so I just say, well, if I'm successful in work, then I guess I'm successful in my life. And when God is left out, work easily becomes an idol. It becomes the thing that defines who you are. Secondly, we can have the two-storied view very common in the Christian circles, this, this secular versus sacred view. And m- most certainly, if you've been around long enough, you've heard some kind of testimony that I think well-meaning but misguided. A missionary stands up and says something like this. Well, I once was a businessman and a churchman. I heard a sermon about doing things which had eternal, life, ter- eternal value. So I quit my job and started working for God. See, that's a very bad view of work. What you're saying is there's, there's two different views of work. There's the really valuable stuff. That's what I'm doing up here. And you all, you're not doing anything that's very valuable the rest of the week. You see how that comes across? Such a bad view of work. It demeans, it diminishes work all by itself. It doesn't say work all by itself is a good thing. It says, no, there's two different kinds of work. There's the secular and the sacred view. And sometimes, again, you hear it come out like this. I run a successful business in order to make money so I can support God's work. That's a bad view of work. 
That's saying the work all by itself doesn't have value. What has value is that I get money and I give it to real work. And God's saying, no, the real work is what you do. 40 hours, 50, 60 hours a week. Imagine if that wasn't valuable all by itself. You spend a third of your life doing something that doesn't mean anything. And God's saying, no, I'm putting you in a partnership with me. Third bad view, or I would say an incomplete view of work. Work is a pulpit. Work is a a platform for your evangelism. And usually you attach a Bible verse. Every, every bad uh, theology also has a Bible verse with it. And so Matthew 28, go into all the world. Okay, I'm going into all the world. And my world is the business world. And it's certainly wonderful that you ha- when you have an opportunity to share your faith at work. But see, work isn't just a platform. You see how you, when you do that, you just reduce it to it's just a platform. I'm just working, but I'm really working to see what God might have me witness to somebody. No, your work, when you make something, it has value. When you sit all by yourself and you create something, you're doing a godlike activity. It doesn't matter if you talk to anybody else. That has value. Now, yes, if you can talk to somebody about Christ at work, wonderful. But if you don't, wonderful. You're still doing something that God has designed for you to do. So we don't want to have a bad view of work. Richard Pratt, great quote about work. The great king has summoned each of us to his throne. And he's saying this, take this portion of my kingdom. I'm making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning to go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and develop to its fullness. So work. This is what you can get out of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It helps you understand what we're designed to be. We're designed to be in this partnership with God. And we form and fill things as we stretch God's purposes around the world by working. Then that all by itself is a good thing. Number two, marriage. We see this in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Again, this enormously... Uh, important topic. Just two observations. Look at verse 18. Uh, then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is the first time. You have this repetition in, in chapter 1. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And suddenly, sort of in an, an abrupt sort of screech, it's not, what's not good? What's not good is for the man to be alone. And so God makes Adam do something first, and that's name all the animals. Why, why would he have him do that? I mean, why not say, hey, it's not good. Here's, let, let's make Eve. Let's just go right to Eve. Why, why name all the animals? Well, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons. But I think one of the main reasons is to build trust between Adam and the Lord. To say, Adam, there's still an emptiness that you feel, that you feel and I'm going to fill it. And you can trust me 
that every good thing that you need, I'm going to supply. I want you to be rock solid sure that I'm in control and every good thing that you have to have, I'm going to give to you. But you see, it, it was only one chapter later he doesn't remember that. He looks at something else and says, well, hey, maybe God's holding out on me. And he's trying to build in this confidence in Adam to say, no, I know you. I made you. I'm going to make sure you have what you need. And I think that's one of the reasons. So Adam names this entire animal kingdom and he says, hey, no helper is fit for him. So God creates Eve out of Adam's side, an important symbolic gesture. Matthew Henry probably says it the best. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Then in verse 22, we see this first wedding ceremony. It's a great little picture. God takes Eve and essentially walks her down the aisle to Adam, who's been asleep the whole time, and, and, and brings, the, brings Eve to Adam. And then here's the first recorded words by humanity in Genesis, and also the only recorded words by humanity before the fall. So it's very interesting. These are the first ones and the only ones in this pre-fall condition. And it's a poem. It's a, it's a love song. Adam sees Eve and he can't say, wow, wonderful. He's got to sing something. He's got to say it in a song. He's got to not just use words. He's got to use his emotions. And that's why in your Bible it's, it's printed a bit differently. And listen to this great song. This at last, it's, it's the, in the Hebrew, it's like, finally, finally, I found the one. All these other things, they were incomplete, but this is the one. Way to go, God. Good work, God. And then he sings this song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Now, I don't know how this sounds in the Hebrew, but it doesn't sound like Adam had the gift of poetry. I mean, at last, this is bone of my bone. Come on, Adam. There's got to be something more than just bone of my bone. And I don't know what song you would choose, but here's one that goes along with it, I think, in, in the, on the radio. Uh, Ed Sheeran. You know who this is? I'm not going to sing it. But, you know, he has that phrase, baby now. And you sing, if you, you know the song, you're singing it in the radio and you think you sound like him. Take me into your loving arms. Kiss me under the light of a thousand stars. Oh, darling, place your head on my beating heart. I'm thinking out loud what? Maybe we found love right where we are. Now, that, that would be better than bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But it's, that's the idea. That's the emotion. When Adam sees Eve, this is the one. This is the person. And then we see in verse 24 at the end, God defines marriage. He wants to set up this building block that's going to be the building block for all of society. All of culture is going to be built around this fundamental building block, and that is marriage, uh, one man and one woman. 
It's like God in Genesis chapter 2, he sets this sort of foundation stone. First, that he's the creator, he gets to decide. Secondly, he's decided how marriage is defined, is defined between one man and one woman. And when those two things, are a, a, a country, a community are built on those things, then you have a good starting foundation. But as soon as those things begin to under, uh, are underwashed and, and begin to erode, then society itself falls apart. It's worth noting, remember in chapter 2, verse 2, this thing I'm calling the toledot, the Hebrew word, it, it, the, these are the generations of, it's asking or answering this question, whatever happened to the good creation of the heavens and the earth? Well, when you get to the very end in chapter 4, Three terrible things have taken place. So the people are saying, well, what happened to the heavens and the earth? And for the next two chapters, Moses tells them what happened. And three dreadful things have happened. Number one, in Genesis chapter three, sin entered the world and created this massive disruption between God and humanity. And then it was kind of like the first domino. And as soon as that fell, other things began to fall behind it. Genesis chapter 4 records the first murder. This, the pinnacle of God's creation. The first domino to fall is we're murdering one another. And then like a wrecking ball swinging into this building block. Chapter 4, verse 19, Lamech took two wives. It just, it just sounds like a thud. Like decreation is already starting. As soon as man gets disconnected from God, see, you have this picture of, of mankind like a kite. You know, you go out to the beach and you fly a kite. You got the it's a spool of, of twine and it goes up and the wind's blowing and, and it's like the kite is just like keep letting string out. You know, it's just pulling say, I meant to fly, I meant to fly higher. And if the kite had a mind, what if the kite said, If I just weren't attached to this string? Oh, how high it could fly, and what happens if you cut the string? It falls to the ground. And mankind in Genesis chapter 3 is saying, oh, if we just could sever our, this one tie, then we could really soar. And what happens? Decreation happens. And the first thing that happens is we start taking our lives from one another. And then this wrecking ball comes in like a thud. And one man marries. marries, marries. And every perversion of marriage off of one man, one woman, it's just the beginning of the degradation of any society. Third, the covenant. See this in verse 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you sh- that you eat it, you shall surely die. The word covenant is not really a word we use a lot. Sometimes you hear it in a marriage. Sometimes you would hear it if you're in a subdivision that might have a covenant of agreement in some way. But it's a very frequently used Bible word. And maybe a good definition is a special relationship by God, established by God, 
which has blessings and obligations and has life and death consequences. So God enters into a relationship. He establishes establishes it. It has blessings and obligations on the person he's entering in with it and has life and death significance. And it's very easy to see in these few verses, God enters into this special relationship. He, out of his goodness, out of his desire, he creates mankind. He puts them in the garden. He blesses them with his breathtaking garden. They're obligated to, to work it, to keep it, to extend it. And then he gives just one command. Here's the one thing. You shall not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now imagine if you're sitting in the congregation of Moses. This congregation that's at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses comes back down from the mountain and they have 613 laws they're supposed to keep. Imagine what they would have think of Adam and Eve. One. You only had to keep one law. Now we have to keep 613. And they can't they can't keep one. He says, look around. Everything, everything's yours. Just this one thing. See, it's the thread that, that makes, makes me know that you trust me. And if you cut that cord, then decreation starts. You think you are in control, and, and what happens is death and destruction enters in. This covenant is what theologians refer to as the covenant of works. It was a relationship conditioned on Adam's obedience. If, if Adam and Eve do the work and they remain perfectly obedient, then we would assume they get to eat of the, the tree of life, and then they would experience this added blessing to their creation, and that is they would never taste death. So they failed, and we immediately see we need a new covenant. We need another covenant. And so I want to just try now to take those three big things, work, marriage, and covenant, and see if we can connect them to Jesus. Because now this is not the congregation that we are sitting in. The work. Because of separation from God, for many people, work becomes an idol. And whether you're a business person or a stay-at-home parent, Work gives you an identity. So if you lose your job or your parent or your kids grow up and move out of the house, you feel like I don't have an identity. That's who I was. That's how I identified myself. That's what gave me value. And and so many people, you know this, there's such a great temptation to stay busy. Oh, I'm so busy. I mean, and it, when people call me, Paul, I know you're busy. How do you know? You don't know my schedule. Maybe I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs waiting for you to call. I mean, you don't know. But they say, oh, I know you're so busy. It's because that's what gives people value in our culture, being so busy. You're, you're so busy because you, you, you have an emptiness in your soul and you want to fill it up. You want you to get your identity from your busyness. Even if it's not work-related, it could be other-related. It's some way to validate yourself. And the busier you are, the greater your value but underneath that is this terrible restlessness. We didn't talk about this last week, but when you get to uh, the seventh day, the seventh day of creation, remember all the days, it was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day. You get to the seventh day, no evening and morning the seventh day. It's because for God, the seventh day never ended. 
finished his creation, he entered into an eternal rest. Hebrews 4. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. See, just what, for, for right now, whatever that means, I'm interested in that. A rest for your soul. You can still enter into this rest. And some are entering that rest. There remains then a Sabbath, a rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. You enter that rest when you trust in Jesus. When he gives you your identity back. Instead of you trying to get your identity from your idol, whether that's your business or your family or any other thing, you get you shift your identity. Hey, he's giving me my identity. I'm in a partnership with him. I'm going to do whatever he says to do. I'm not going to worry about doing more and I'm not going to do less. I'm going to do whatever God is asking me to do. And, and so now my identity no longer comes from my work or family for a preacher, it doesn't come from my sermon or the size of my congregation. It doesn't come from your physical appearance. It doesn't come from your financial appearance. All those things begin to lose their grip as you grab a hold of Jesus and you begin to enter that rest. That you don't have to work for your value. Christ has worked for your value. Oh, that's a wonderful rest. It doesn't mean you don't go back to work tomorrow. You just go back to work with a different attitude. It's not your identity. Second, marriage. It would be interesting just to study marriage all the way across the Bible. Um, but for our purposes today, we know that marriage is probably the closest picture given to us of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus uh, marriage is the mirror that God uses to say it's hard to know what it's really like to have a relationship with God, but it's kind of like a marriage. That's the closest thing. Paul calls it calls it a divine mystery when these these two people have a face to face relationship. They have this intimacy, and it's like two different people becoming one new person. That's the closest thing we can get to what it is to have a relationship. With God, And we know from Revelation 19 that that marriage, the marriage banquet is the terminating point for this timeline. So in some ways, marriage begins Genesis chapter two. It begins the story and it also brings this timeline to an end. It's a marriage supper of the lamb. Genesis Revelation 19. It's like a hinge between this heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth. This is the, the this timeline is this heavens and earth and there's there's going to be a hinge and a new heavens and earth are going to come down not just a garden a whole new creation is going to come down and at this little hinge point it's a wedding supper it's a wedding feast and the people say this 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the roar of this song and the arrival of Jesus is going to collapse this timeline and open up another timeline for eternity in a new heavens and new earth. That day is going to happen. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And today you're being invited. You're being extended an invitation. Find your rest in Christ. Find what your soul has been longing for in a face-to-face intimate relationship with Jesus. Accept that invitation to say, I want to be at that last. When that hinge point comes, I want to be sitting at the table. Won't be a very good creation in the end. It'll be a perfect creation. There will be no more opportunities for sin to enter in. Finally, the covenant of works. Adam's disobedience plunged all of creation into this terrible state of sin and misery. And so we, we basically need a second Adam. We need another person to come in, somebody who can represent us perfectly, who can obey God's commands perfectly. And the promise of the second Adam begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. The promise begins there and it ultimately ends in Jesus And we enter into this new covenant, and we call this not the covenant of works, but the covenant of grace. Because you no longer enter in by your work, praise the Lord. You enter in by his work. In some ways, it's still a covenant of work. It's just not your work. It's God's work. (laughs) What a great place to be. I can enter into an eternal rest I can have this face-to-face relationship. I can, I can go out and work and be in a partnership with God. But it's, none of it's dependent on me. It's all dependent on Him. That's good news. That's the gospel. So you have an invitation. Not rely on your works to, to be at this wedding supper, to trust in this covenant of grace. Let's pray together.